Good morning. My name is Greg. I want to welcome you here. It's a delight to have you here uh, and be with you. Uh, we really do feel like there's something unique about when we are able to be together. And whether that's here presently or you're engaging via our live stream or even later on in a podcast, we are uh, aware and delighted over the many different ways we are able to connect and, uh, and be present with one another. And so, and it, it's from that space uh, that I would like to open us in prayer. God, I do ask that you would speak to us in the way that, that, that only can happen when we're engaged with other people. Um, that there is something unique about that space, something about that time uh, that, that you speak in ways that, that, that connect to all of us. And so I pray that this would be a space like that, that we would be able to hear from you um, and also be aware that we are together. We are with uh, with other people who are somewhere in the process of seeking, engaging, uh, and knowing you. And so, um, yeah, just ask that you be with us in, in only the way that you can. I uh, ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in uh, week two of a sermon series that, uh, that we've titled Understanding the Bible. And, and it feels like sort of looking back on that, that a different title might have been better. Um, because although we are exploring the Bible, uh, to, to throw it out there like when you get done, you're probably going to understand everything you need to know uh, about the Bible seems like uh, a little more than, than what we're able to offer, um, especially in three weeks. Uh, but <laughs> what we are going to try to do is um, really sort of sort of um, maybe open our eyes in some different ways to see the Bible uh, new, to see it maybe a little differently than we have or, or maybe uh, even in the way we always have but have forgotten or, or something. It, we're hoping that there's an awareness that comes out of this uh, about what, what the Bible uh, really is. Uh, and so this week, uh, the sermon is entitled Eat This Book, uh, and it's the, the first part I'm going to try to do the next two weeks in a really two-part thing that this week's called Eat This Book, and the next part is called Beware of What You Eat. Uh, and so um, we're going to start off this week kind of exploring what that looks like and how that works. But, um, you know, as we've started this series, uh, one of the things that, that we've been really wrestling with is, so how do you, what is the Bible, and how do you get at that? And, and there's just so many ways the Bible has been talked about, the Bible's been used and dreamt about, and, and all kinds of things. And it was really interesting this summer... Um, I was able to spend some time in uh, Norway, and when we were in Oslo, we found, uh, thanks to Keith and Sue, this wonderful uh, couple we met, uh, that there is a Bible museum in Norway, and I never even knew such a thing existed. Uh, and so we went there, and I got to kind of geek out a little bit. This is one of the, uh, nope, that's not it. It's it on here. There we go. Thank you, Drew. Um, it, this is one of the printing presses they used to use uh, to, to print off the Bibles, and it was this just phenomenal, uh, intensely labor-intensive, uh, uh, labor that's what I'm looking for, uh, process. And uh, so we got to see that. And if you look right next to it, there's that little glass case, um, and that... There's two Bibles in there, and you can see they're really big, 
and they're really old, uh, but the, the reason these Bibles are here, because they have a ton of Bibles there. They had the world's smallest Bible, which really, you can't even read it. It was just, someone was like, well, let's make it as small as we can, just because we can. Um, but these Bibles, they, they wanted us to see, not just that they were old, like they were made a long time ago, but these Bibles were really well used, right? They were read a lot, the bindings ripped off of them, and all those kinds of things. And so it was really cool to get to see uh, some of these things. A um, couple other uh, interesting ones. Uh, this is from Christian IV. It's a Bible uh, that was made in 1633. And you can't totally see the, the detailed print on the, uh, on the inside cover there, but it's pretty ornate. Uh, at least in my mind, for what I think of coming from 1633, uh, and to think that they had to put that through the printing press and, and how they all had to work that and stand and all that kind of stuff. Um, this is from German Elector Bible in 1670, uh, which, if you don't know who this guy is, uh, he doesn't have anything to do with the content of the Bible, but you're going to find out in a second. It was very important uh, to these people that they had their pictures in them, and this is Carl VII's. Bible from 1703, again, a big picture of, of this person who we don't really uh, know who they are. They're not related to the content, but for some reason, there's a big picture of them in the Bible. And one of the things I learned when I was at this museum is that the Bible has been used in some really fascinating ways. Um, in Scandinavia, the kings there, uh, every time there was a new king, they would print a new edition of the Bible because the Bible was, was a way to sort of claim power. Right? And so they would put a big picture of themselves in the front of it, and maybe they would update something like uh, when they were able to use a little bit of color on the front, front picture, right? You could make some things blue or red. That was like, oh, this is really getting fancy now. And so even uh, if it was, you know, uh, the son who took over the throne from their father, um, it, they would say like, well, I had to do a better Bible than dad did. And so it's got to be a little bit bigger or the cover's got to be more ornate or the print's got to be fancier or something because that was a way for them to establish power. And so they'd put a big picture of themselves in the front of it. So whenever you opened it up, you would never remember, oh, this great edition of the Bible came from so-and-so. Um, another thing I learned is that the Bible, when it was introduced to nations, it would cement language. Uh, one of the things they talked about was how um, uh, the Icelandic language has not changed for such a long time because uh, in their estimation, Iceland was the 11th nation to have a Bible uh, and that that cemented their language, that the Bible was something that uh, either you'd come to church and hear it or you'd, people would be talking about it. And so it was very much uh, a way they would set the national language. And I was just amazed, like, oh, I didn't even think about something like that. We also saw these, what they called family Bibles that were really big Bibles like the ones in the pictures. They're these big, thick, and sometimes they were, it didn't even look like you could lift them. They were so big. Uh, and some of them were, would cost the people uh, a year's worth of their salary, right? And so to have one of these was not just this cool big Bible, but it was sort of a status symbol. If you had one of these big Bibles, it meant that you were able to afford that. And it just, I was just kind of blown away by some of these things because they're just not things I've typically associated with how the Bible is viewed. But in this series, one of the things we're addressing is um, sometimes we don't let the Bible be what it is and we try to make it something else. Right? We try to sort of fashion it and shape it in what we want it to be instead of letting it be what it is. And this leads to all kinds of different thoughts about the Bible, how to interpret it, how to read it, how to engage with it. 
Some people say that, that the Bible is without error. It's absolutely perfect, and you have to take everything literally, that it's written by God through human agency, and so there were people who wrote it. But um, So an example, I was teaching a class on the book of Revelation, and uh, at one point, just going through it and, and admiring the poetry, and it's not just poetry, but it's also a letter, and it's also an, a, an apocalyptic letter, and it's also a prophetic letter, and so it's got all these kinds of genres going on in it, and I just stopped and I said, you know, I just want to point out, John, the author of this, is just amazing. Like, what a genius, what a creative artist, and someone stopped me and said, no, 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 that has nothing to do with John, that's all God. John's personality wasn't in there, and, and I was like, oh, okay, uh, and, and they were actually quite offended that I would suggest that the person had anything to do with writing it, except for sort of having their hand on the pen. Now, if I, and, I, and I tried to be careful, because if you say something like, well, so are you saying that John was just like in a trance or something? That's not what they're talking about, right? And, so I, and that's sort of like coming in hard on them, and so I tried to explore that more, and they were just, they wanted me to be careful with saying like, you don't want to allow too much human agency in there because if you do, well then, oh, there might be mistakes in there and what if it's not, ah, and it starts to get really uh, uncomfortable for people, right? And so that's one side. The other side says, well, the Bible's a completely human creation. It's inconsistent. It's got a lot of errors. There's faults in there. Things are made up, right? And it's almost deceptive. Uh, and there's all kinds of things in there that are really difficult to understand, Right? And not just that it's, it culturally doesn't make sense, but things, you know, like, oh, wow, there's things that we're dealing with today that seem to be okay back then, right? We have issues with slavery in the Bible and how does that get worked out and, and all kinds of things that we have seemingly at times a very different view than the Bible, so we wrestle with those things. And for a lot of people, that means oh, the Bible is no good. We're just going to set it aside. And then in the midst of this, there's this guy named Karl Barth. And Karl Barth says, it's kind of all of it, right? And, and, and it seems like, uh, and if there's a mathematician here and I'm doing this wrong, uh, just humor me. Um, but also, I'll say this. This is the way I've always seen it. When mathematicians talk about imaginary numbers, to me it feels like, so you don't know the answer and you're just subbing something in there. You're just saying, oh, we don't know, but it's going to be this because that makes sense to me. Right? And, and sometimes it feels like Karl Barth kind of does that because what he says is, is that, yep, the Bible has errors, was humans that wrote it and all this stuff, but it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And when God moves within Scripture, then it becomes this like, agent that you can understand more about God. You can learn the story of God and all these things. But just on its own, just sitting here, Without God being present in the life of the person engaging with it, it's just a book with some words that have been written in it um, and things like that. And so there's this way where Bart is trying to say it's kind of all of it, but even that gets kind of dicey and at the same time kind of sends my mind on a, on a trip. So, so then what do we do with this? Right? How do we then figure out it could be this, could be that. So how am I supposed to engage with this? And if you remember back, we were in a series just before this called The Crux of the Matter. And one of the things we talked about is how our brains 
uh, operate in a way where they're trying to ask just sort of from a natural perspective, a survival perspective with everything we encounter, is that thing going to help me or is it going to hurt me? Uh, and, and John Medina, um, really super smart guy, um, um, biogeneticist, he, uh, he phrased it into three questions that our brain is asking, uh, can I eat that thing? Do I need to fight it? Or can I mate with it? Right? And you're wondering, where are you going with this? Uh, so I'm going to say with the Bible, I want us to eat it. Right? I want our brains, I want our bodies, I want our whole person to think about eating this book. Um, and as we think about this, I have a couple of verses that I want uh, to read for you that I hope will uh, help this process. Um, the first one is from Ezekiel, and it's chapter 2, verses 7 through uh, chapter 3, verse 3, and it says this. Uh, you must speak my words to them, whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are rebellious. This is God speaking to Ezekiel. But you, son of man, listen to what I say to you. Do not rebel like that rebellious people. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Then I looked and saw a hand stretched out to me. In it was a scroll, which he unrolled before me. On both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. And next slide. And he said to me, son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll, then go and speak to the people of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me the scroll to eat. Then he said to me, son of man, eat this scroll I am giving you, and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it, and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. Okay, so that's Ezekiel. Now, in the book of Revelation, chapter 10, verses 1 through 10, says this. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. And when he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, there will be no more delay, but in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more, go, take the scroll that lies upon the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land, so I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Now, this is, uh, I'm using this as a metaphor um, for uh, what it means to engage with Scripture. Eat this book. Um, I want to kind of recover this idea and all the implications it has for the, the, the Christian community. And I want to impress this almost like a command in the imagination of people everywhere. Right? Most of us have a handful of sort of essential commands or, or ideas that we carry around with us in our heart that are easy for us to access. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Honor your father and mother. Repent and believe all these things. Don't be anxious. Give thanks at all times. Take up your cross. I want us to add, eat this book. Not merely read it, but eat it. Scripture, yeah, this is from Eugene Peterson. Scripture nurtures the holy community as food nurtures the human body. We don't simply learn or study or use Scripture. We, we take it in. Bring it into our lives in such a way that it gets metabolized into acts of love, cups of cold water, serving in all the world, healing and faithful presence and justice, all in Jesus' name. Hands raised in adoration towards the Father, feet washed in the company of the Son. I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. Take it and eat it. What this means is that we're not just pursuing uh, scripture in this kind of objective way. We're not just looking at the words to try to gain some information. Eating the book is different. It has something else in it. But in our culture, we're often taught to read uh, in a way where we are just gathering information. Right? And, and in the age of, again, John Medina in a talk on attention span said, uh, one of the things that has shifted uh, in, in uh, sort of the past 20 years is um, we don't have to know information, we just have to know where it's at. Right? We just manage it. Right? So I may not have it internally, but I don't have to because I can just go somewhere and get it. It may not be something that we practice, this, this eating of books. And so things become really impersonal because it, uh, doing it that way removes our participation in it. And it makes me think of when I was in college uh, and, and I would be studying for an exam often the night before um, and the idea was is I'm gonna sort of cram all this information into me anywhere it can fit and then on the test the next day I'm gonna sort of vomit it up and hope that it lands in the right spot. Right, and, and you know, and what I found was that some of those exams I passed, <laughs> some I didn't, um, but I didn't really remember much of that stuff, right? That a lot of that stuff didn't get into me. And so there's something different. Eating a book takes it into our person, like into the tissues of our lives. Readers become what they read. And in doing this, what we find is that there's a story being told. And that somehow we find ourselves in the midst of that story. And I don't know if this has ever happened to you where you're reading a book. Uh, I remember one of the first times this really happened to me that was so tangible. The book was called uh, The Man Who Was Thursday by G.K. Chesterton. Uh, it is my favorite book of all time. Um, and, uh, and so... Uh, but when I was reading it the first time, there's this one spot in the book where I had to take the book and physically shut it and put it down because I was just beginning to lose the ability to sort of discern between what was real and what was not, right? That I could feel something in me going, oh, this is kind of a tense moment in the book. I feel like the world around me is getting kind of tense. It feels a lot like this book. I found myself in the story, the same kind of thing happened to me at a much younger age. Um, I did not grow up in a Christian home, but 
uh, I had been given a children's Bible, uh, and my parents were faithful to read that to me uh, quite a bit. And there was one particular thing that I asked for over and over and over. Some of that had to do with because there was an illustration next to this that I really liked. But this is, I'm just going to read uh, the first little bit of it because that's I'll explain in a sec. But this is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And then my dad would keep reading, but his voice would kind of start to fade, not because it was actually fading, but because my imagination would take over. Green pastures, quiet waters, that was all it took for me. I was in the story. I was there. I was in green pastures. I was next to quiet waters. And, and, and I, for, for the life of me, I, I, I remember hearing that over and over and over. I don't remember hearing my dad ever read the rest of it, but I know he did. But that's what it's like. And I think when we lose the ability to be lost in the story, then there's something with Scripture that we're missing. And it is a lot like eating. Uh, anyone in here a chocolate fan? Okay, good. So I'm a... I love chocolate, uh, and we often have chocolate bars stashed all over our house because we have to hide them from other people that live in our home, um, because if they find them, uh, they don't always just take one piece. Uh, I don't know where they've seen someone do that, but, um, but there's a brand of chocolate, and I, I, I never say the name right. It's spelled V-O-S-G-E-S, um, but there's instructions on the 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 packaging to tell you how to eat chocolate, which I was like, ah, I've been doing it pretty successfully for a long time. And it's like a little pretentious to try and tell me how to eat chocolate. But I want you to listen to these. Begins with pressing the chocolate with your thumb to release its natural aroma. And then like a fine wine, take a whiff of your chocolate until you pick up the flavor sense. If you only smell chocolate, keep going until you get to that vanilla-y, caramely coffee aroma. The third step is to snap your chocolate in half. This indicates the quality of the cocoa butter in the chocolate and how well it is tempered amongst other things. Now you need to get your palate ready for the chocolate. So go ahead and have just a tiny bite and press the chocolate against the roof of your mouth and let it rest and melt there for about as long as you can stand it. Do not chew the chocolate. Not only does this prolong the whole experience, but it also helps you appreciate the chocolate. When I read that, I was like, this is garbage. Right? I don't know. <laughs> and there's no way. And then I tried it, and I was like, what have I been missing my whole life not doing this? Right? The aroma. Oh, that makes me want to eat it. Yes, that's the point. Right? Okay, so then, but I can't, I can't eat it yet. I got to break it in half and go through all this other stuff. But it all helps savor and enjoy the flavor and sort of the fullness 
of the chocolate. When we just read the Bible for information, we miss the fullness of the story. Are we willing to eat the Bible, to read it this way, to wander through the poems and the history and the letters and the story, to ask questions, to observe, and to let it be confusing and to let it be messy and try not to force it to be some magic book or something else that it's not? Some of you may be familiar with Rachel Held Evans who recently passed away. Um, I have a great amount of respect for Rachel Held Evans. I don't always agree with everything that she believes. But what I respect her so much for is that she was willing to ask questions that many of us are scared to ask. Or that we're asking and we try to hide that. In the midst of all that, she maintained her relationship with the Bible, the church, and Jesus, where many of her contemporaries who were asking the same questions grew really distant from those, didn't attend church or, or, or gathered community the same way, didn't stay connected to Scripture, and became distant to Jesus. She remained just steadfast in all those and constantly talked about the importance of maintaining community, staying connected to a church, remembering that Jesus is all the things that the Bible says he is and remaining engaged with scripture. And in her book, it's called Inspired, Slaying Giants, Walking on Water and Loving the Bible, she noted these things. That in her youth, the Bible started out as a storybook there's these great stories and hearing them and these great victories and good defeating evil and all these things that she remembered. In her adolescence, it switched to be a useful handbook. Right, there's some, some great advice in here when I needed it. I had a question about, well, how do you deal with this situation? How do you navigate this? Scripture had an answer. And in her college years, it was a, not so much of a handbook in that way, but it was, an, it was an answer book in terms of defeating the enemies of Scripture, right? Finding those arguments that you could go after people with uh, when you were fighting with them about what the Bible said, that it, it sort of became this weapon, this sword. But then she started asking some questions about some things that didn't really make sense to her in Scripture, and all of a sudden, the Bible became what she called a stumbling block, a massive obstacle between her and the God she thought she knew. But instead of leaving the Bible, she dove into it. And at the start, she would say, not in the best way, because she said she became a bit of a Bible bully is the way she phrased it. She used her study to sort of render the Bible into a curiosity, an interesting religious artifact to study for sport. And she said, although the Bible still fascinated her, it no longer spoke to her, at least not with the voice of God. It was now a fixture, cold and mute. Sweet in my mouth, but bitter in my stomach. But she stayed engaged. And she kept on with the Bible and continues. And she described her journey, what she called back to loving the Bible, as a meandering and ongoing one, a story still in draft. And she said one of the keys to all of this was a challenge that she got from one of her mentors, this uh, guy named Peter Enns, who's a biblical scholar and theologian, and he challenged her with the following question. 
What if the Bible is just fine the way it is? Not the well-behaved, everything-is-in-order version we create, but the messy, troubling, weird, and ancient Bible that we actually have. She said that question allows us to engage the Bible honestly, engaging the Bible for what it is, not what we want it to be. And that is what I discovered over and over and over and over both in the past, reading about the Bible, and in getting ready for the series. Every scholar, theologian after theologian, follower of Christ after follower of Christ, saint after saint, all said, we have to engage the Bible for what it is. And across the board, they identified it as story. Whether it's a letter, it's in the story. Whether it's historical document, it's in the story. Whether it's an apocryphal document, it's in the story. Whether it's prophetic, it's in the story. Whatever genre of literature it was, it's in the story. A story? Really? Is that it? Yeah. In fact, N.T. Wright calls it a five-act play full of drama and surprise wherein the people of God are invited into the story to improvise the unfinished final act. Oh, this place where our ability to faithfully live out and be present in the roles we have in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our friends, in our places we work, the schools we go to, wherever we're at, to faithfully live out those roles. It all depends on our willingness to enter the narrative and see our own stories intersect with the grander epic of God's redemption in the world. Every page of scripture serves as an invitation to wonder, to wrestle, and live the adventure, to eat it. But we don't always do this. We often are gathering information, whether it's doctrinal, philosophical, or historical. We're trying to take things in our own hands. We're trying to gain some form of control over the information we're getting. but there's something different happening here. Ernest Hemingway, at one point in his life, was uh, sitting around with some friends and some other authors, and he said, you know, I could write uh, a story in six words. And they said, no way. And so he wrote six words down on a napkin. I'm not gonna read them, because the words he wrote, they're, they're, they're not like curse words or anything, but it's a heavy, heavy thing that he does. Um, and so if you wanna go look that up on your own, you can. Um, but so I was like, oh, I wonder if I can find a couple words from Scripture, and maybe there's a story there. So I went to John eleven thirty five, and it says, Jesus wept. And I was pulled in. Why? Why did Jesus weep? And if I don't know who Jesus is, who is Jesus? And then I, I thought, have I ever wept? Yeah, why did I, why was I weeping? Did Jesus feel the same thing that I did? Or was it something different? And it opened up this possibility. Could this person, Jesus, relate to me? Off of two words. Story. Henry David Thoreau 
uh, wrote of having traveled a good deal in uh, Concord, this small New England village in which he spent his life. And, and the idea was, is he's saying like, yeah, I spent a lot of time traveling in this really small town. It would be like me living my whole life in this neighborhood and saying, yeah, I traveled a lot in Wedgwood. People would say, what? This is not that very far. Why, does that, why is that so significant? Well, another guy, Louis Agassiz, uh, this uh, I probably said his name wrong, but he's a Harvard biologist and professor. He uh, came home after summer um, vacation uh, and told his students that he had spent the summer traveling uh, and made it halfway across his backyard. I want to explore scripture that way. Again, Eugene Peterson says, I want to hold out for traveling widely in holy scripture. For scripture is the revelation of a world that is vast, far larger than the sin-stunted, self-constricted world that we construct for ourselves out of a garage sale assemblage of texts. I want to hold for traveling widely in holy scripture. Do we dare rub with our thumb to let that aroma out? Do we dare to break off a piece, see what that leads? Do we dare to let it sit in our mouths? Some of us are in a space where the Bible doesn't seem to be that grand. The adventure isn't there. Maybe it's a stumbling block or maybe it's just not that interesting. It's hard to get into. My questions don't feel safe. I'm full of doubt and I don't want to say that because that maybe makes me look bad. I actually think it's quite good. And you'll find yourself in the company of a lot of, uh, really, in the Bible, people that are held up very high who are asking those questions, who would go up to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, by the way, uh, which one of us in your kingdom is going to be the greatest? What? (laughs) What? Why would you ask that? Well, we say that because we've seen the other side of it. And we see Jesus say, what is wrong with you two? But they were bold enough to go ask. Are we bold enough to go ask Jesus honestly our questions? And whatever you do, don't stop. If you're hungry, dig in. Now this is the first part of a two-part sermon. And so next week, we're going to be looking at the impact of eating scripture. What does it do? What does it look like? And that's why it's entitled Beware. So we kind of have an idea for what kinds of things it might bring about in our lives. But I wanted to start this to get ready for that. So if I invite the worship team and the prayer team back up. I have a couple of questions in just a second. I'm going to read to you. Um, the, when I'm done reading them, the worship team's going to play for a moment, so you can uh, write those down or take pictures of them. I realize as I talked to Rich during the break that you did not find a connection card on your chair because uh, we did not pass those out. And so uh, if you want to text us or email us any questions or responses today, uh, that would be fantastic. Um, yeah. If you want a connection card, we can have them passed out. Um, however you want to engage with this uh, and, and get your questions to us or whatever. But, and, and you can take pictures of these too. So here are the questions. The first one is, are you hungry? Is there something in you that is stirring to know more, engage more, explore more? 
And it is possible the Bible could be a place where that happens. Two, have you engaged with the Bible in a way where you allow the Bible to be what it is instead of trying to make it something it's not? An answer book, a weapon, a handbook, a joke, etc. What are the different ways maybe that you and I have tried to make the Bible? You know, I realized, uh, I think I said this before, but you know, the, the verse that says like, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Uh, and, and, and we often quote that, vo- that verse and, and, and that idea when it's like working for us. Um, uh, but I realized at one point like, uh, saying that I have to include the option, I can do all things, even be wrong. Right, that if uh, I have to use that verse and, and, and re- read it as it is, not turn it so it only works for me, but no, no, all things through Christ who strengthens me, I might have to be strengthened because I was just wrong in something I said or did. Number three, in order to enter the story of God in scripture, we have to know our own story. Do you know your own story? Who are you? How did you get here? What's been going on in your life? Right, those are the things that are going to help you when you engage with Scripture to all of a sudden go, oh, yeah, actually, I was weeping yesterday. Jesus wept. I want to know about that. I, I, I'm in that story right there. Do you know who you are? And we're going to touch more on that next week, but there's a starter with that. And then lastly, were there any ideas that came to mind while we were talking uh, about uh, ways that we can engage with the Bible that would be like eating it, that would sort of fit that um, sort of fit that description. A side note here, um, when we eat, we do stop. We chew, we swallow, allow food to settle. If we just keep eating and eating and eating, we, we die. So some of it might be, uh, I know lots of times when I hear sermons about the Bible, I feel this part of me go, yep, I'm gonna read the Bible for like two hours every day and it's gonna be awesome. And then I try it and the first morning I get in like 10 minutes and I either fall asleep or something happens and it doesn't happen. And then that very day I'm like, well, I'm a really evil person and that didn't work so I'm not gonna do that anymore, right? You get to pick something that's manageable. Maybe it's one verse a day. Maybe it's one word. It's a key word in scripture, love, redemption, sacrifice, whatever it is. Maybe it's joining a core group and sitting with some other people. Core groups are small groups. Uh, Some of them are are Bible studies centered around scripture. And you go to those groups and you talk about scripture. You engage with scripture with other people. Maybe it's something like that that is a way that helps you to eat it. But what is it? Maybe there's some ideas that we're circling around. Okay, I'm going to pray. Worship team is going to give you a moment to reflect on those. And if you have a way to communicate those to us, you can. Um, and, then, um, and then we'll close with a song. God, and we talk about connecting, finding our story in, in your bigger story. I'm so grateful that... that I'm not talking to someone who doesn't know what that's like. Because we know in scripture that you entered the story. You didn't just write it, create it, and then just sit off somewhere in the distance. You entered the story. You entered the good and the bad and everything in between. You lived our life, you died our death. And then you rose again. 
Lord, there are doors in my heart that are opening, just hearing that. Right? What, what does that mean? How is that possible, Lord, that you relate to us, that you know us, that you invite us, all these things that we discover if we allow Scripture to be what it is. Father, I pray you help us to explore widely our own backyards of Scripture. God, that we would be captivated by every blade of grass, every twig, every animal that comes scurrying through. Whatever it is that we would find, I pray you would stir our hearts, Holy Spirit, as we don't give up on engaging with you through your word. I pray you would help us to stay connected somehow. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.